Well, do turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter to the Romans as we continue to make our way through this wonderful letter. Book of Romans, we find ourselves still in chapter 1, but we will be finishing it up today. We'll be reading verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, but I'm, I'm just going to really be preaching on verses 24 through 32. But would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I suppose that most of you are familiar with the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Judges recounts a particularly dark period in the life of Israel. And that dark period is especially dark because it stands in contrast to the generation that came before it. Of course, the generation that preceded the book of Judges was that generation who had come into the land of promise who had been given by God that land of their inheritance, the land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. That land was finally given to them in their deliverance out of uh, slavery in Egypt as they came possession into possession of it under the godly leadership of Joshua. God was with them. Uh, he was defending them. He was routing their enemies before them and he was establishing them. But as you turn the page into the book of Judges, something tragic happens in those early chapters. We're told that Joshua and the elders of that generation die. 
And when they die, the people no longer give God the worship that is due him, but instead they turn to the idols of the surrounding nations and they begin to worship them. Let me just read a bit of this account from Judges chapter 2. It says that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, all those who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth, so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And now hear it. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The reason I read this passage is because the same language that is used in Romans chapter 1 is also used here in the book of Judges. This language of God handing over or giving up a people to something. Here he is giving the people up to be plundered by their enemies. As I mentioned last week, uh, Dale Frederick Bruner says that in the Bible, when God hands over or gives over, that is the single most appalling thing that can happen to a human being. And we see an example of this happening here in the book of Judges as God, because of their idolatry and because of the people's refusal to acknowledge him, now gives them over to be plundered by their enemies. It's the same thing that is happening in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says that the people exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now remember, in Judges, this is only two generations removed from the Passover and that great Exodus deliverance. They're only one generation removed from the conquest, from all the victory God had given them. And yet no sooner does that generation die than they turn to the idols around, in spite of the fact that God had given them his law, which explicitly told them to remember what he had done. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of, the, out of the house of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And yet, that's exactly what they do. And it provokes the Lord to anger so that he reveals his wrath. And the way that he reveals his wrath is by giving them over to the nations, the very nations where they are going after their gods. It's, it's as if he says, if you want to worship false gods, you want to worship idols who have no power whatsoever, you want to worship uh, carved hands which cannot save you, okay, then let them save you then look to them for help. And what happens when God withdraws his hand and gives them over is that they find no help. They can no longer withstand their enemies. The very enemies are the ones whose gods they are worshiping. And the Bible says they live in terrible distress. It is a terrible thing when God gives people over in unrighteousness. It's nothing less than a revelation of his wrath. It is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Paul says. Last week, we began to talk about this revelation of God's wrath in the book of Romans, how it is revealed to heaven 
and specifically why it was revealed to heaven, why it was revealed from heaven. It was revealed because uh, God had plainly revealed himself. His eternal power and divine nature are, are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that he has made. Nevertheless, they did not honor God or give him glory. And worse than that, they took that glory and honor and worship that they should be giving to God, and they gave it to created things, things which were not worthy of worship. They exchanged God's truth for a lie. And the Gentile nations have been no better than the Jewish nation. And God's wrath is revealed from heaven, but we should remember that that is not simply something that is reserved for the end of time. He does say that that is something that will happen at the end of time. In fact, in the next chapter, uh, Paul tells us that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. There is a day of wrath that will come. But verse 18 tells us that God's wrath is now presently being revealed. And it is being revealed as God gives people up. As he gives them up to dishonor their bodies, as he gives them up to dishonorable passions, and as he gives them up to the debasement and darkness of their minds. And so today, as we're looking at this passage, we're going to let those that the repetition of that phrase just guide our thinking. Those will be our three points. God gave them up to dishonor their bodies, verses 24 through 25. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verses 26 through 27. And God gave them up to a debased mind. Not sure what that was. God is giving people up. Now, just from the outset, as we consider this first point, I want you to see a couple of things here that apply in general to this idea of God's giving people up or giving them over. The, the Greek word paradidomi is the, is the word that's used over and over here. And the first thing I want you to see about it is sort of the holistic nature of this giving over, that when God gives them up, it is in the whole man. It is body and soul. It is in their physical bodies. It is in their desires and passions, and it is in their minds or their thoughts. There is not one part of them that is not affected by this corruption. It's what we call total depravity. Uh, it is that there is no part of man that is, that is unaffected. Our thoughts, our thinking is darkened, our affections are bent and wrong, and our actions are sinful. In the second place, I want you to see that, that God's giving up here of people is not arbitrary. There is a proportionality to it. It is as they refuse to honor God, so he gives them over to dishonor themselves. They will not honor him, so he gives them over to the dishonor of themselves, a life lived in defiance of God's honor, and seeking to honor ourselves will in fact only lead us down a road of dishonor. There is justice in God's judgment. And so with those, those two things in mind, let's consider what it says here in verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Notice the word therefore. It reminds us again of why God has done this. It's because of that terrible exchange that humanity has made. And because they have done this, God is giving them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, notice first that God is not impelling man. He's not forcing man to this impurity. Man is, as it were, already floating down a river of impurity. God is giving them over to the lusts that are already in their hearts. And yet at the same time, we should not think of God as being merely passive here, as if this was just sort of a bare permission. It doesn't say that God let them give themselves over. It says that God gave them over. 
Think back to Judges, where it says that God gave them over to be plundered by their enemies. Yes, it's true, he was no longer with them. He was no longer going with them into battle. But it says that when he's not going with them, positively his hand is against them. When God actively withdraws his hand, his hand is positively against. I think we might think of it like this, like a man who is caught in a current of depravity. And not just caught in the current of depravity, but positively playing in it, swimming in it, enjoying the pull, not realizing that downstream are moral hazards far greater than he sees now. And the only thing that is holding him back from crashing upon the rocks and going over the falls is God's hand restraining him and keeping him back. But what happens when God lets go? What happens when God removes that restraining grace through the conviction of the conscience? What happens when God allows that conscience to be seared? Well, what happens is it gives way to unrestrained sin. It is God's giving men over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And we can think of many different ways in which uh, people dishonor their bodies in impurity. I mean, I think most basically we must think of all forms of sexual immorality and impurity whether it is what the Bible calls simply fornication, these relationships outside of marriage, or adultery, uh, these relationships with someone who is not your spouse. And we could move on from there to speak of the impurity of current cultural fetishes, everything from drag to transgenderism to sadism and masochism. It's not hard to see that the impure lusts of fallen man's hearts are many and they are varied. But it's clear from this passage that Paul has one particular manifestation of this dishonoring of the body in his mind. And that brings us to our next point in verse 26 where it says that for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he describes those dishonorable passions as both men and women being consumed with a passion which is contrary to nature, how they exchange the natural relations in the world for unnatural relations. The women exchange their natural relations with men for relations with women. The men exchange their natural relations with women for relations with other men. And we don't need to guess about what Paul is talking about here. However, people may try to explain this away. The language is very clear. What the ESV translates simply as relations in Greek refers very, spe very specifically to sexual relations. Uh, we, so much so that we might translate this that they gave up the natural sexual function of one another and exchanged it for a function that is unnatural or contrary to nature. And he's not thinking of simply the abuses that may have accompanied shrine prostitution in ancient Rome. That is, that is included to be sure. Um, but that is not what he has in mind. He's speaking to us very specifically of this ungodly, unrighteous, unnatural exchange. Beloved, our anatomy, our biology, our reproductive capabilities, all of these speak very clearly to God's natural ordering of his world. The relations that he describes are inherently unfruitful relationships. When God created the world, he created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And then he brought them together and he declared that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
Paul goes on to tell us how this marriage relationship is actually a great mystery. Because when God ordained and ordered that marriage relationship, he patterned it after the relationship of Christ and his church. There's a very real sense in which marriage between a husband and a wife is a sort of earthly role play of the reality of Christ and his church. Wherein this very ordering itself is meant to teach us spiritual truths. And what Paul is saying here is that part of the way that man exercises his rebellion against God is very specifically in rebelling against the way he has ordered his creation. Rebelling against the way he has ordered his world. This is part of the suppression of the truth, part of the futility of their thinking and the darkness of their hearts. And I think it's also part of that idolatry. Uh, Think about idolatry for a second. What is at the center of idolatry is not just that I give up God, but it's that I put myself up as God in his place. Wasn't that the original temptation in the garden? You will be like God. Even when people carve and create physical idols out of wood or stone, in many ways that is the expression of self-worship. Because you get to control that thing. You get to put it in your pocket. Matthew Roberts says the convenient thing about idols is that we are their masters. Or at least we think we are. And so idolatry can take this form of crafting a physical idol. That's one way of making this exchange of God's truth for a lie. But another way of making this exchange is in the partners that we choose. Choosing not a partner that God has ordered, not a partner that is complementary to me, but a partner that looks just like me. One commentator put it this way, God and humanity in a covenantal worship are represented by male and female in covenantal union. Therefore, when humanity turns from God to worship self, God hands us over to what we have chosen and dramatizes it by male and female turning, imaging themselves for sexual union. That is to say that marriage as God created it was a relationship that was meant to magnify the gospel and the relationship of Christ to his church. But God says, if you want to worship yourself, then I will give you over to a relationship which on the face of it magnifies that you are a self-worshipper, that you are in a relationship that says, I don't want the compliment of me. I want more me. Now, obviously, what the Bible says here is completely out of step and unpalatable in our current culture. If Paul said this on virtually any campus in America, it would be labeled as derogatory and offensive hate speech. 100%. But this is not new. And the offensiveness of this is not new. Uh, It was every bit as offensive for Paul to say this in his day. Let us remember that Paul is writing to Rome. He's writing to the Romans. There is nothing practiced or celebrated in our current culture that was not practiced and celebrated in Rome. If anything, some of the expressions of this sin in Rome were more egregious than they are today, more acceptable, more celebrated, more expected, And I think that is in large part why Paul highlights this particular sin of homosexuality here. Because it was a particularly prevalent Roman sin. It served as an example of the way in which God was giving over that culture in the futility of their hearts and the hardness of their hearts. So we we shouldn't think that this warning was any more palatable back then. 
it would have felt just as offensive to unbelievers in Rome as it would feel to those in Gainesville today. But you know, when God says things that offend us, they are meant to warn us and to wake us up from the complacency of where sin leads. It's easy to think that being unrestrained in our sins leads to freedom. That's what you hear all the time. I just want to be free. I want to do what I want. I want to do it when I want, and I want to do it with whomever I want. And if you refuse me that, you're just a bigot. But beloved, unrestrained sin does not lead you to freedom. It leads you to the hardening of your heart. It leads you to callousness. It leads you to bondage. It leads you to dissatisfaction. And ultimately, it leads you to death. And God would have it offend us if it might lead us to repentance. I'm reminded of this scene in The Lord of the Rings where Bilbo's heart is becoming hardened by the ring. The ring is beginning to enslave him. It's beginning to exercise this power over him. Uh, his, his mind is becoming darkened by it to the point where he actually accuses someone who has been his very close friend, Gandalf, of trying to steal it from him. And you might remember how Gandalf becomes very large and he speaks with authority and power so that he frightens Bilbo. And he says, I am not trying to rob you. I am trying to help you. When God confronts us with our sins, he is not trying to rob us of freedom. He's trying to help us to freedom. He's not trying to rob us from pleasure. He's trying to help us toward true pleasure. And if Paul says things that are uncomfortable, it is because he is setting up the context for the gospel, for the real help that God brings. If he paints the backdrop dark, it is only so that the glory of the gospel might shine more brilliantly. But beloved, before it shines more brilliantly, it still has to get darker. And so let's go on to the third point. How God gives them up to a debased mind. Once again, we hear this dreadful language of God's letting go of God's withdrawing his restraining grace, of his allowing men's consciences to be seared so that their sins now intertwine and layer up into this sort of dark fabric of ungodliness and unrighteousness. So look at verse 28 and following. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, I am going to quickly run through this list. And as I do so, I want you to feel the cumulative weight of all of these forms of wickedness piling up on one another. Unrighteousness is, of course, just wickedness. It is the setting aside of what is right to do what is wrong. It is unrighteous. Evil is a synonym for unrighteousness, but it carries a further condemnation. It has this idea of being spurred along by evil spiritual forces of wickedness. Covetousness is an illicit craving for something that does not belong to you. Malice is ill will. It's a word that focuses on our evil intentions. Envy is the resentful despising 
of those who have something that you want. And murder is, of course, the act so often fueled by envy and malice. Strife is a pretty general term that refers to fighting and quarreling. Deceit is the act of misrepresenting or concealing the truth. Maliciousness is the specific desire to do harm to someone. Gossips are those who are willing to spread harmful or vilifying rumors in private, and slanderers are those who are willing to do it in public. Haters of God is a reference to those who unabashedly rage against God and his ordering of the world. Insolence are those who are disrespectful, who treat others with contempt, The haughty are those who puff themselves up in their arrogance. The boastful are those who are constantly bragging about themselves. Inventors of evil are those who are always coming up with new and novel ways to commit sin. How many different ways can I steal? He speaks of those who are disobedient to parents. Rebellious children who are pushing off the authority of their parents, once again striking at the order of creation. And then he lists four things at the end that all begin with a Greek article, ah, at the beginning, which means that they are devoid of it, they are without it. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. To be senseless is to be foolish, not in a stupid way, but in a moral way. Faithless is to be untrue and disloyal. Heartless is to lack affection and ruthless means that you delight in cruelty. Now you might ask, why take the time to explain all of these terms? Because I think it's important to understand that Paul is not just cherry-picking one particularly grievous Roman sin. He goes on to say that this debasement of men's minds, as God gives them over to it, is seen in the multitude and the multiplicity of sin, as God withdraws his restraining grace. And when you look at this list, who is not guilty? And that is exactly what Paul wants you to feel. That is how it is supposed to land on your heart. Because as Paul brings this to a conclusion in the next couple of chapters, he's going to say things like, you see, there is none righteous, not even one. He's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But just in case you might think that someone slipped through the cracks, he concludes with verse 32, which caps it off. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's not even that you are engaged in these things, but that you might approve of these things. Here, Paul is saying the quiet part out loud. That those who practice these things deserve to die. And I think we we need to understand that term death here in the full biblical sense of it. That is to say that they deserve not just physical death, but what the Bible refers to as eternal death. That final state of misery where God fully withdraws all the light of his beneficence and kindness, and he leaves sinners to the full and open exposure of his wrath. That is a thought more terrifying than I think we can truly appreciate. That is why in Revelation, sinners will cry out to the mountains to fall on me and hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. And he says that this is deserved not only by those who practice these things, it's deserved also by those who give approval to the practice of these things. Where sin is approved of and where it is celebrated, God's wrath is revealed. 
These are sobering words. They're sobering words, but they are given to help us. And so we must not dismiss them or try to excuse them or try to explain them away to say that they don't really mean what they say. No, we must stand with God's word and stand under God's word and trust that what God says, he says because it's true and because we need to hear it. And I think if you have not learned this by now, you should know that there is nothing in this list that any one of us is not capable of. That seed that Pastor Crawford was talking about is in all of our hearts. And if God were to remove his restraining grace, and if you became the worst version of yourself, this would be the description of you. Now, maybe you're here today and you're offended by what I've said. Maybe you're thinking in your mind, well, people are born with these desires. How, how could it be that if you're born with these desires that that could be dishonorable or degrading? I don't dispute that people are born with different defiling desires. In fact, the Bible teaches that very clearly, that we are all born with dishonorable, defiled desires. We have all been born into this estate of sin and misery. We have all been born with hearts that are desperately wicked. We have all been born in guilt and corruption, which is precisely why the Bible says that we must be born again, that we must be born from above, that we must be given a new heart and a new mind, that we must be renewed in knowledge and righteousness after the image of our Creator. But our desires do not define us. Maybe you're here and you're confused. Maybe you've heard that love is love and that it doesn't matter who is involved as long as it's love. As the Roman culture practiced these sins, it led them to what we call pederasty. The so-called love of a man with a young boy. Is love love? The Bible does not say love is love. Love is not self-defining. The Bible says God is love. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Love is the reflection of God's character. To call something love, which God calls sin, is to express that rebellion against God and his order. It is God who has the lone right and prerogative to define what love is. And God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. Beloved, the fact that God is love should astound us. That God is not just all wrath all the time, but that he is love and that he demonstrates that love toward those who deserve his wrath. Maybe you're here and it just doesn't enthrall you. It doesn't excite you. Maybe you're walking in your sin and you're dismissing it as though it's no big deal. Maybe you think, well, I'm not doing those really big sins. So I think I'm okay. There are no small sins. When you look at that list at the end, it's envy and gossip and arrogance and disobedience to parents. That Paul says, 
those who practice such things deserve to die. To quote old John Owen, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We cannot be unconcerned or indifferent, but we must be vigilant and on our guard against sin. And if you're unconcerned, and if you're dismissive of sin, and if you're justifying your sin, let me warn you that the more you play in that river and its current, and the more you shake your fist at God, who is the only thing restraining you and holding you back, God's word today is warning you against such callousness of heart. And he's calling you to faith and repentance. But maybe you're here today and you're not calloused. And maybe you're not offended. But maybe you're sitting there and you are so convicted. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're struggling with the worst of these sins. Maybe you're sitting there feeling exposed and embarrassed and ashamed. Well, first, praise the Lord, because if you can still feel that, then it means that God has not given you over. It means that he has not withdrawn his grace in your life. It means that you can still grieve over sin. And if he has not withdrawn his restraining grace in your life, then you can be sure that he has not withdrawn his saving grace in your life. And I would call you again to look up in hope and faith to the loving face of Jesus, to confess your sins and to cry out to him for grace. The Bible is clear in what it says. From 1 Corinthians, it says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But it immediately follows up those words with these words. And such were some of you. The church was full of people who had given themselves up in sexual immorality. It was full of people whose lives were characterized by adultery and idolatry. It was full of people who had given themselves up in homosexuality, people who were thieves, who were greedy, who were drunkards, who were revilers, who were broken and corrupt. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are looking in faith to Christ, beloved, you are not defined by your past, you are not defined by your sins. Your identity is bound up in Jesus Christ and you are washed you are sanctified, you are justified. To be justified means that you have been accounted with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. That all of the things that you have failed to do and should have done, he did in your place. And all of the things that you should have done and never did, he never did. He never sinned. He only lived righteously before God. And justification says that God has taken his record of righteousness and has accounted it to you. And the way he did that was by taking your record of sin and by accounting it to Christ. Let me just conclude with this final thought. We've looked today at three instances where God gives people over in their sins. The word paradidomy is used three times in this chapter. It's used three more times in the book of Romans. And we're going to get to all of those. They're all beautiful. 
But let me draw your attention to one in particular. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where it says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, against this dark backdrop of God's giving people up to his wrath for their sins, there is the far more staggering reality that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up to his wrath for sin. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up so that he might spare sinners like us, so that we might not be given up. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If he did not spare his son, but he gave him up, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Beloved, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I would call upon you today to look to Christ. This dark backdrop of your sin is the backdrop upon which the diamond of the gospel shines so brightly and gloriously. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are sobered by the things that you teach us in your word. We are mindful that if you offend us, it is to warn us. And it is to call us out of our sins and out of our wicked thoughts, our dishonorable uh, passions and our degraded mind to come and to be shaped in our hearts and minds by your word, to be born again from above, to, to be given a new heart with new desires, to be even changed and shaped into the image of Christ himself. Lord, we thank you that we are not defined by our passions. We are not defined by orientations. We are not defined by our past sins. We are not defined by our present sins. We have been washed. We have been justified. We have been sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we are defined by his righteousness. And so we thank you that we can stand before you with freedom, knowing that it is for freedom that you have set us free. And so we say all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you're seated, you are seated again at the Lord's table. You have not come to gather up the crumbs that have fallen on the ground like dogs. You have been invited and you have been given a seat at God's table. If you belong to Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you have a seat here at this table, and at this table our Savior gives bread and wine. These elements that he gave so long ago, even on the night when he was betrayed, when he was going to give his life for sinners, he gave these elements, and he said, this is my body that's being given for you. And this is my blood that is being poured out for you. And think about the symbolism of this meal. He takes these ordinary elements and he says, these are symbols of wrath. These are symbols of judgment. This is what I must undergo. My body must be torn to pieces and my blood must be shed in order that you might have forgiveness of sins. And that is still what these elements say. But they now say it positively. They say, my body has been broken. My blood has been shed. You have the forgiveness of sins. And so come and remember 
and do this in remembrance of me. And as you remember, I have communion with you. I have fellowship with you. And this, this cup of blessing is the cup that the Lord gives you to drink. He puts in your hand and he says, take, eat, and drink, and do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to this meal today, we should come to it in hope, believing, astounded that we are able to pull up our seats to this table and to know that Jesus is reminding us of the great depth of his grace, that all of the wrath of God has been satisfied for those who trust in him. But maybe you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ. Maybe you're here and you're walking in your sins, or maybe you have professed your faith in Christ and are a member of his church, but you're, you know you're walking in sin. And you know you're walking in rebellion and your heart is calloused. This meal is also a warning to you. The Bible says that we should each examine ourselves so that we may come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. That means you have to have the ability to examine your own heart and to know that you are walking in faith and in repentance before God. And if you are, then you are welcome to come and to join us. If, if you belong to Christ church, are baptized uh, into his name, if you are a believer trusting in Christ, then you're welcome to come. But if those things are not true of you, uh, let me remind you that these elements are symbols of judgment. And they call you today. They call you away from your sin to faith and repentance. And so even though you might let these elements pass today, I would call upon you not to let Christ pass. Just like those beggars on the road would not let Christ pass, but called out to him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Let that be the call of your heart today. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, let's pray and ask that he would take these ordinary elements then and that he would set them apart for this holy use. Oh Lord, as we draw near now to your table, we thank you that we do not come like dogs gathering up crumbs, but we have gathered as your children, as those whom you love, as those whom you have forgiven and accounted the righteousness of your Son, as those for whom your wrath is satisfied. And we have no better picture of it than the, the symbols that you give us of the torn bread and the poured out wine. And so we pray that, that you would bless these elements, that you would set them apart for this holy use so that as we receive them now in faith, Christ himself and all of his many blessings of grace might be ours, that we would know that we are washed that we are sanctified, that we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this is what defines us. Help us to stand in and upon your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.